Welcome to the Vulva Diaries with host Dr. Amanda Selk, bringing you the 101 on vulvovaginal health. Today we're going to talk about vulvodynia, and we're lucky to have Dr. Elizabeth Stewart, who's the Director Emerita of the Vulvovaginal Service of Atreus Health in Boston. She's also the author of the V-Book and co-creator of the wonderful education website, vulvovaginaldisorders.com. Hi, Dr. Stewart. Good afternoon. So why don't we start by you telling us what is vulvodynia? Vulvodynia is a term that derived by the International Society for the Study of Vulvovaginal Disease in an effort to give a name or recognize the existence of the many reports of burning vulvar pain that had come into them. Vulvodynia, the word caught on, but never had any specific meanings or definitions until about 2015, when it was finally defined as pain, genital pain for the female, with no identifiable cause. We now know that we have many, many causes of identified pain on the vulva, but lots of times, if this is truly vulvodynia, we will not be able to say what the cause is. The known causes are just what you might expect, infections and inflammation, such as skin disorders, uh, neoplasm, uh, neurologic, such as a nerve compression or injury, trauma, uh, genital cutting or obstetrical injury, iatrogenic, chemotherapy, radiation, operations of various sorts, and hormonal, menopause and lactational amenorrhea with the loss of estrogen will cause a major problem for many people. Over the years, we've also decided that there are many associated factors that may well prove to be causes of vulvodynia, such as associated pain syndromes, for example, painful bladder syndrome, formerly interstitial cystitis, is often commonly seen with vulvodynia, fibromyalgia, inflammatory bowel disease, and that sort of thing. Uh, We've learned that the muscles of the pelvic floor are tremendously important and are often involved either as a result of pain or maybe the cause of pain. We certainly know that there are sexual relationships and structural relationships, such as perineal descent. So there is a lot to rule out in order to make the diagnosis of vulvodynia. It comes in several forms. We refer to generalized, where the pain is all over the vulva and vaginal area, or uh, localized, restricted to a small area of one or the other. And it is possible to have both vulvodynia as well as pain of a known etiology. Do you have to have it for a certain length of time before you use the term vulvodynia? Yes, the definition uh, includes that it should be longer than three months' duration. And how common do you think it is? Right now, population studies are estimating that approximately 8% of women in the United States suffer with vulvodynia. That would mean more than 12 million women, and that's a very significant number. So when the patients come in with pain, what sort of questions are you asking them? Lots of them, because as I've indicated, there are a whole lot of things that need to be ruled out. 
before you make the diagnosis of vulvodynia. You need to obtain as clear a picture of the pain as you possibly can. So this begins with a complete history and a system-by-system review. Then a lot of other uh, very important pieces of information. Uh, Lifestyle. What, What does a woman do if she's on her feet all day? or if she is sitting all day, uh, those things can play into the picture. If she has a job with lifting and bending and that kind of thing, it's very important to know that. If she's a sports instructor or a yoga instructor, all of those factors can be important. Hygienic practices are also important. We often think that any genital problem is a result of being unclean, which is almost never the case. Women do a great many things to stay clean as well as to stay dry, which we are, we are told we must be, and feminine and lacking in any kind of odor. As you might imagine, the sexual history is extremely important, and uh, what has been going on in sexual relationships certainly will have a huge influence. And finally, the role of anxiety can never be underestimated, I think, in any kind of pain problem or chronic medical condition. Getting at these last two things is a particularly difficult task for a physician, and it often takes more than one visit before you have a clear picture of just exactly who your patient is. So in addition to your history taking, which is very important, how else do you diagnose vulvodynia? Well, once you have a a complete history, you'll want to do a a physical examination, which will, of course, include a a pelvic and bimanual examination. But you also want to look in the mouth, for example, to make sure that she's not suffering with lichen planus, which can also affect the genitals. Do a careful check of the pelvic floor muscles. Muscle tension and muscle spasm are very common features of vulvodynia. A very important part of the diagnosis is also microscopy-associated lab tests to see what might be going on inside the vagina. If you are going to care properly for vulvovaginal patients, microscopy is extremely important. I realize that the microscope is considered essentially a dinosaur, and yet if you do not have the ability to look and see if there are white cells of inflammation on the slide or other evidence of inflammation or infection, you may miss something such as disquamative inflammatory vaginitis and there are other conditions that the microscope is invaluable for diagnosis. So history and then pain mapping, going step by step in a systematic fashion across the vulva and in the vaginal area, trying to determine exactly what hurts, using a Q-tip to touch gently. You may discover that a huge area is involved, or you may find only a small focus where a nerve branch is operating to cause pain. So that History, pain mapping, the examination, microscopy, those make the diagnosis. So you've come up with your diagnosis. How do you counsel your patients? It uh, is very important to explain, first of all, that vulvodynia is uh, unique to each woman. Each case is different. That's true of most diseases, I think. And that there is no standard treatment. We still 
are lacking good research to know exactly what works the best. We encourage women that they can generally expect improvement, but we have to set expectations that uh, this may need a multidisciplinary approach with physical therapy for the pelvic floor and treatment for the vaginal conditions and maybe some work with counseling or sexual therapy and maybe some work with anxiety relief. Uh, All of those things combine to help with the problem. It's also important to say that it takes time and probably wonderful, comfortable sex again, which is often the desired point that every woman wants, is probably the last thing to come along. Have to get pain, inflammation, and other factors cleared up first. It's important to know that besides the pain, which must be treated, any other existing condition that may contribute needs to be treated. It's a Above all, important, as I've mentioned, uh, to talk about sexuality and what factors may or may not be operating, and to talk about anxiety and the fact that it has a role in making just about everything worse if it is present. I always mention anxiety at the first visit. Most of the time, uh, people don't want to uh, admit that it may be present, and it's something that we keep circling back to over the time that we work with patients. You talked about how there isn't a clear-cut ideal treatment for everyone, and that's usually multimodal and different things work. Do you have a usual first line that you treat patients with? Well, the education and counseling is certainly the first step in setting expectations that this is going to take time and talent to improve. Then I like to try to eliminate any possible pain triggers. So if a patient is sitting all day, we try to make sure that she's sitting in a comfortable chair, uh, that she gets up and stretches and walks frequently, uh, that she uses the bathroom regularly. We get rid of anything that might be contributing to a possible pain. We introduce comfort measures, what may help, Cool packs and ice packs, carefully covered up so they don't give you frostbite, are amazingly comforting to women. And one of the gold standards is uh, soak and seal, sitting in comfortable water for a few minutes and then uh, sealing in the moisture with a thin film of petrolatum or Vaseline. Uh, This is particularly helpful if people have uh, vaginal infections or skin problems. But soak and seal feels good for just about anybody. I've already mentioned the uh, anxiety factor, which uh, may take a lot of repetition and uh, gentle persuasion to allow treatment. The medical approach that we use is topical lidocaine, about 5% ointment, not cream, which has other ingredients in it that may bother the skin. Uh, Women put on lidocaine three or four times a day. Many women use it before intercourse or after intercourse, and we find that it's a very helpful tool in the toolkit. In addition, oral tricyclics have for years uh, been worked with and are known to be safe when, when used properly. So we often use something like 10 to 50 milligrams 
orally of dizipramine nightly, discuss the uh, side effects of dry mouth and the possibility, remote but still important, of serotonin syndrome. It's important to know that now there is a study that eliminates the helpfulness of dizipramine in women with provoked vestibulitis, but still in other types of vulvar pain, it still may be helpful. A second agent that is often used, although once again, some studies are suggesting that it's not helpful, is gabapentin, 100 to 600 milligrams at bedtime. Gabapentin can be very sedating, so it's important to, as they say, start low and go slow at 100 milligrams, explaining that sedation may occur, but that it is often transient and will go in a few days. Taking the medication earlier in the evening may help with the morning sedation. And then once again, uh, something to help with anxiety, consulting with a behavioral health person about what might be best or making the referral also very helpful. A few minutes ago, you mentioned that patients can soak in water. Do they need to do anything fancy with the water? Well, we always have thought that you needed to put something fancy in, but it is the just plain, warm, comfortable water that hydrates the skin. The skin is very greedy about moisture, allowing it to become fully moisturized and then sealing in the moisture is a basic therapeutic measure with anything involving the skin. Well, that's great. And everyone has access to water usually. So what resources do you usually give your patients? Well, I give them any related educational material about any identifiable condition that I've found. So if they, for example, have lichen sclerosis, there's information about that. Or a yeast infection, we certainly have yeast infection information as well. In my practice in the vulvovaginal service, we have regular handouts on many of these topics that we have compiled and use regularly. There are handouts from the National Vulvodynia Association, www.nva.org, and the International Society for the Study of Vulvovaginal Disease, that's issvd.org, has all kinds of information and help available on their website. And you earlier mentioned my online learning program, www.volvovaginaldisorders.com. There's an entire uh, section on handouts available on that. This is uh, free to everybody. All you have to do is sign up. That is usually uh, covering the standard topics and questions about pain. And how often do you feel you have to see these patients and follow up? Like how soon after the first time you see them, how often do you follow them? It depends entirely on how severe and how badly affected they are. With an extremely anxious patient in great pain, it may be necessary to see her in a few days or a week or two. But the average patient comes back in about a month. It frequently takes treatment that long to click in really well, and waiting until that time is helpful. We always counsel about reasons to call, uh, pain that's getting worse, feeling excessively sedated, having thoughts about self-harm, and uh, we give the signs and symptoms of the serotonin syndrome if we're using antidepressants for pain. 
And do you find patients with vulvodynia get better? They do. As we get better with our learning and knowledge, they do get better, um, but it does take time. Another part of setting expectations is that the changes of improvement are very subtle. Pain gets just less from a five to a four or less frequent, or if it does occur, it occurs for a shorter period of time. As I mentioned before, it almost always requires a combination of treatments. We don't have any one-size-fits-all. And we always emphasize to people that many pain conditions are managed, not cured. We can't help for 100%, but we certainly know that we can get women to have a healthy and enjoyable lifestyle, including resumption of sex. Do you have any final take-home points for our listeners? Don't give up, ever. There are lots of resources online, as well as uh, helpful vulvovaginal clinics in cities throughout the United States. And there are organizations that I've mentioned uh, that can be extremely helpful um, that I've already mentioned. Yeah, the NVA.org just opened up all their access to be free for people. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. Yes. It is. And there's and there's all these new National Institute for Health grants for research for vulvodynia. It's becoming a people are becoming more aware of it as an important issue for patients, which is really wonderful. It really is. We've come a long way uh, since I started when there was just about nothing. At least we have a good classification and we have lots of ways to help. And there's lot, seems to be lots of ongoing research. Right. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. That was Dr. Elizabeth Stewart, the Director Emerita of the Bubble Vaginal Service at Atrius Health in Boston. Thanks again. 